well, when did brains evolve or what, what really are brains relative to other types of tissue, you run into these, these really troublesome corner cases. Because for example, I've, I've been in, in, in meetings of, of devoted to basal cognition, where we spend three hours arguing about what a neuron is. It's really not obvious at all because people say, well, it's electrically active, right? Every cell in your body is. Mm. Well, it has neurotransmitters. Yeah, lots of cells in your body have neurotransmitters. I'm Christina Hudson Kohler, an egg processing manager living in Syracuse, New York, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we interview Dr. Michael Levin. Dr. Levin is a wild character. This is probably the largest edge case since Lee Cronin, and he might even go further than Lee. Dr. Levin is studying electricity in living beings. He is taking genetics and saying, what is the added component, the thing that makes those genetics come alive? And his research has led him to some fascinating discoveries that I'm guessing many of you have never heard of. I know I certainly hadn't before I started doing research on him. One of the things that his lab has done is they've taken a certain kind of flatworm and cut it in half. Now, this flatworm is able to regenerate if there was a head left on that flatworm, it would regrow a tail. If there was just a tail, it would regrow a head. But Dr. Levin has figured out if he applies just the right amount of electricity in just the right way, he can actually prompt two heads to grow. He can prompt a salamander to bring back uh, eyes in a different part of their body. And he has done really amazing and interesting things that brings together genetics and electricity in a way that has been never seen before. And this is a phenomenal and fascinating and mind-blowing interview. And I assure you, it is not for the faint of heart. There are very few times in an interview when I ever am listening to my guest and saying, oh my gosh, you are describing a future that is somewhat terrifying and totally intoxicating at the same time. So buckle in because this is going to be a wild ride. Christmas is coming up, and one of the things that I do when I'm on the off-season from traveling to give speeches is I conduct legacy interviews. This is when a listener to the podcast decides to hire me to interview one of their loved ones. Maybe it's a grandparent or a parent to tell family stories, to tell all of those values that you want to make sure are preserved, and it's one of those gifts that is uh, rare and really truly unique and something that will last not only your lifetime but potentially to your children and grandchildren. So if you're interested in having me interview a loved one, go to store.articulate.ventures and sign up for one. I'm trying to get most of them scheduled before December 15th and I only have so much time because I'd like to get them back to you for Christmas. Or if you'd like to purchase them and give them as a Christmas gift, then we can always do the interview after December. But But uh, if you're trying to get it in before the holidays, give me a shout. I only have so much time uh, between speaking and podcasts and all the other things I do. But this is a wonderful gift to give somebody. So if you'd like me to do a legacy interview, go to store.articulate.ventures. All right. Now, without further ado, Dr. Michael Levin. Michael Levin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, happy to be here. So you're a curious character. Uh, While most of the world is sitting and focusing on genetics and how can we make uh, gene edits and um, really focusing on where DNA fits into life, you are focused on the electricity that is going inside of human beings. Not just human beings, really all, all, uh, all living organisms. So let's start off with what is probably a super basic question for you. Um, 
What do you mean that that uh, organisms have electricity in them? What what is what is going on there? Where does that electricity come from? What does it actually mean to to talk about it in this way? Yeah, well, it, just to back up for one second. So uh, I have nothing against genetics. Uh, it's it's all good. Um, it's I, the easiest way to understand the distinction is. Uh, by perhaps analogies to uh, computer computer science and the difference between hardware and software. So what the genetics does, what the genome is for, is to specify the micro hardware that every cell in the body or in fact in any living organism has. So the genetics specifies all of the proteins that your cells have, and that's that's the hardware. But once that hardware is up and running, so the metabolism is going, every you know the cells are alive and everything's going, then there's a very interesting uh, software dynamic that kicks in, which is that these, these devices, which are produced by evolution to survive in the natural world, can process information in really interesting ways. And a lot of that uh, computation that goes on in collections of cells is electrical. And so uh, basically think about all of the things that the brain does. So your brain is a collection of neurons. They are all electrically active. They communicate with each other by passing electrical states back and forth. And as a result, you have this amazing capacity for behavior and learning and cognition and and so on, those processes are way older than brains. Evolution discovered the beauty of electricity around the time of bacterial biofilms, really long time ago. And so every cell in your body, not just your neurons, but every cell in your body produces a, a particular set of uh, electrical signals and is able to communicate those signals to its neighbors. And they propagate back and forth through the tissue networks that make up your body. And it's basically this is where brains came from. It is the it is the, um, the, the this is the ancestral ancestral state of uh, cell to cell communication. Yeah, as I was pouring through your uh, work and things people have written about you in the New Yorker and on and on, the first time when I was really struck, like, whoa, this is a different way of looking at the world, was when you talked about um, how mold can actually teach other mold something. I don't think that was necessarily discovered in your lab, but you were talking about it in terms of information is being shared and they can teach one another. This seems so bizarre as to be difficult to even describe. Yeah, so this is definitely not work that was done in my lab. This was done by Audrey de Sautour um, in France. And uh, yeah, these are slime molds, which which we have done work on other aspects of slime mold uh, basal cognition. And they're amazing. And what they're telling us, along with many other systems, is something that we kind of already know from understanding evolution anyway, which is that problem solving, meaning intelligence, and uh, the ability to learn from the environment and to anticipate changes in the environment and so on, certainly did not wait for brains to evolve, right? Every every living creature from the, from the humblest microbe on up has some capacity to process the information in its environment and make better choices as a result of it to try to optimize its survival. And uh, slime molds uh, certainly are an amazing example of it, but it is an ancient, ancient property of life. I'm not even sure you can have life without some uh, aspect of that kind of cognition. Where does this electricity come from? Like it's, where is it generated? How does it <laughs> propagate? What, I don't, I mean, like, I, I feel weird asking you such a simple question, but I, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, no, it's not weird at all because because uh, it, it's it's rare that anybody other than a neuroscience class covers this at all. Um, so every every cell in the body has these little proteins on its surface called ion channels, and these little uh, these little proteins can open and close in place. And when they open and close, they can let certain charged uh, charged molecules such as potassium, chloride, sodium, protons, and so on. They can let them in and out. 
And based on which ones go in and out, that determines the charge imbalance across the cell membrane. So in most cells, there are more negative charges inside than there are outside. That gradient is powered by metabolism. It's powered by, by the food you, you eat. And, and ultimately, every cell uh, has, to, has to keep up that voltage gradient. One of the implications of this is that all of these electrical phenomena can only be measured in the living state. So unlike genome, uh, genomic information or uh, RNA information or protein information, which you can get from a dead fixed cell, right? You can recover these molecules and read them out. The bioelectrical uh, properties are literally the spark of life. They, they are gone. The minute the cell dies, they're gone. And so in the living state, that me metabolic um, process sets up this voltage gradient. And then that, that's, just, that's just the baseline of having the juice on, so to speak, right? After that, these channels will open and close to modulate it the way that you would in, in any kind of communications device. So you modulate that electrical signal and you also have ways for that electrical signal to propagate to your neighbors. So, so, so cells can sense or read each other's voltage potentials. And very much like in the brain, these electrical states propagate outwards. There are waves that of, of propagating changes. There are uh, memory events where a cell will, uh, for example, change its voltage and then stay that way long after the stimulus that changed it is gone, right? So that's a basic memory uh, process. And the the one of the most important things to know about this is that these ion channels, some of these ion channels, so, so we know that ion channels determine the voltage because they are the ones that let the charges in and out to change that, that, that battery across the cell memory. But many of these ion channels are themselves gated, meaning opened or closed by the voltage state. So it's kind of this bi-directional loop where the channels both determine and are themselves determined by the voltage. And that means that what you have is a voltage-gated current conductance. Uh, said another way, it's a transistor. That's all a transistor is, is a voltage-gated current conductance. And so what evolution discovered really early on, right around the time of bacterial biofilms, is that when you, cre when you create this amazing little molecular machine that is a voltage-gated current conductance, you can now very easily build feedback loops, memory circuits, uh, all kinds of amazing things that we now exploit in our computer technology. Ev evolution, like with many things, beat us, beat us to it. That's um, once you have these kind of transistors, you can build anything, right? That's what that's what we now know. Any comp computation can be done that way. And so, you know, it's clearly going on in the animal kingdom as you're describing. We talked about it being with uh, slime molds, trees, flowers. They have electrical volts as well. Most certainly. Uh, so, so, so not quite as much, I think, is known about the functional aspects of this as in the animal kingdom, but absolutely. Uh, some people have done really remarkable work. I mean, going back uh, into the um, late 1800s and early 1900s, people went around taking all sorts of measurements of uh, various electrical potentials in plants. And more recently, it's been shown with, uh, with molecular experiments, finding ion channels in, and finding uh, potentials that propagate under damage and under various kinds of states. Uh, I, think, I think we're going to find that the basic story, which is the exploitation of these amazing laws of computation, the fact that if you, if you build specific kinds of electrical machines, you can do decision-making and integrate information and so on. We're going to find this exact same thing in the in the plant kingdom. I'm, I'm I'm quite convinced of it, especially since we already know, for example, that certain aspects of of uh, let's say neuroscience, like the use of neurotransmitters, which many cells use neurotransmitters, not just neurons. Plants, in many ways, have a similar system. So, auxin is very much like serotonin, for example, and it can move around under electrical power within the. Um, 
plant tissues exactly the way that the serotonin is redistributed in early embryos by electrical gradients. So I think that evolution is reusing the same kinds of strategies. Not, not only does it use the same kind of strategies, but another thing that's always struck me of this um, for years ago is this uh, is this this idea that uh, fungi or and, and various plants right they may have compounds that cause mammalian brains to hallucinate so now this is amazing because we have independent w w origins of multicellularity right we plants and animals became multicellular separately and yet that ancestor must have that unicellular ancestor must have already been using these kinds of molecules in order for this to appear in both lineages why why is it that a uh, that a mushroom or um uh, various kinds of hallucinogenic plants just happen to have a, a compound that is a perfect fit to something that appeared many many millions of years later in mammalian brains and is part of the cognition so they don't just poison you they actually have a very subtle effect in changing your cognition isn't that amazing that 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 that, that would happen i always thought it was incredible and i think yeah i mean it, it's it like um you think about the plant human connection you know whether you can eat something and it works with you and it always seems like um it was an accident like a happy accident but when you start putting it in these kinds of uh frames it's totally different right you think about the the fact that a plant produces caffeine or nicotine and that keeps away insects but oh lo and behold it's a great stimulant for human beings how did that happen and i've never heard anybody even put forward a a case other than just it being an accident yeah, I, I I don't really uh, th accidents are rarely I think the right uh, the right answer for these kinds of things, um, and and um, I I think that uh, you know you can for certain things like various toxins and so on you can imagine a kind of evolution where it's it's uh, not not so much an accident but but it developed a toxin to keep the predators away and and so on but this is a very specific thing and this is not just a toxin this is not about poisoning uh, poisoning various uh, predators this is having a molecule that can make such a I mean, poisoning things is easy, right? Ruining complex systems is very easy. But having a uh, having the kind of stimulus that will make very specific tweaks in uh, in a creature's cognitive apparatus that's that's not an accident, right? That's a, there's, there's no way that that's you're going to get that by accident. That has to be a very um, uh, a very specific uh, sort of combination of of conserved molecules all the way back to our unicellular ancestors and some selection pressures which i have no idea what they were that that optimized for this kind of uh, relationship but but yeah i don't I, I don't think it's an accident at all so um many of the people when they're writing about you and your work they talk about your work in the regeneration of something as out there as an entire limb and this comes from the idea that you took worms and you're able to cut them in half and well i'll let you explain them what what kind of goes on in nature and then how you've taken that idea and been able to evolve it into something much larger yeah what we what we find in nature is uh an amazing capacity for regeneration so if you are a salamander you would be able to regenerate lost limbs a lost tail which is important because it has spinal cord um, eyes jaws portions of the heart and the brain uh and and you know they're just incredibly regenerative and and then these flatworms that we can also talk about they're even more regenerative flatworms can be divided can be literally cut up into into p into many pieces the record is something like 275 pieces and every piece will regrow exactly uh what uh, what it what it needs in order to be a perfect little worm now the upshot of all this is two things. First of all, from the point of view of regenerative medicine, we look at these creatures and we see two things. 
first that it is possible as a complex organism to restore your structures after they're formed by embryogenesis. So that gives us hope that we can be regenerative someday, right? And the other thing uh, the worms are telling us is that it's actually also possible to be immortal because these worms have no lifespan limit. There is no such thing as an old planarian. They, they are continuously regenerating senescing cells. They live basically forever. And so, so these things to me as an engineer, these are kind of design challenges. I look at this and they say, right, so what you're telling me is that it is not impossible to be a complex organism that lives forever and regenerates itself. So that, that's great to know because now we can strive for that. The other important thing about it is what it's really telling us about about um, collective intelligence and decision making, I mean, think about think about it. Uh, all of these organisms are made out of uh, a, a huge number of tiny cells. These cells themselves are fairly competent, like amoebas. They can do certain things, but when they work together, they can do massive things. So the goal towards which they work are things like make a limb, make an eye. These are huge things. No individual cell knows what an eye is or how, how many fingers you have or anything like that. The collective knows. So it's a kind of collective intelligence of, of the cell swarm that is able to do this. And the most amazing thing about regeneration is that it knows when to stop. I mean, think about it. When you, you amputate a, a, a salamander limb, for example, lots of these cells begin to grow and move and, and, and uh, change shape and differentiate. And all this, this incredibly rapid activity takes place. And then it stops. When does it stop? It stops when a correct salamander limb is finished. That's when it stops. Now that is the hallmark of a goal-directed process. There's a there's an endpoint towards which it works. When you've achieved the endpoint, you stop, right? So that is that is there's nothing you could say about this other than that it's a goal-directed process. Now, and in fact, it matches. Um, William James had this amazing definition of intelligence. He said that intelligence is the ability of an agent to get to the same uh, endpoint from different starting positions and despite perturbations along the way, right? That's intelligence. This is absolutely an example of that. And we, I have many amazing examples that I could tell you about, but very simply, if the salamander loses a wrist, from the wrist down, all that's formed is, is that if you lose it at the elbow, you get the whole limb. It knows exactly how much is missing. From different starting positions, it gets to exactly the correct final state, a perfect limb forming. So the trick here then is to understand how does this collective uh, store in some way, uh, store the information about what it should be doing. So the set point of this homeostatic process, think about it like a thermostat in your house, right? There's a, there's a set point somewhere you have to record that I want, I want this around 72 degrees. And then the thing basically has this loop where it takes a measurement, it decides whether it's off of, no, of, of where it needs to be in which direction. And then it takes corrective action until the, the error, until that delta is as small as possible. That's what regeneration does is it reduces error as much as it can after, after you've deviated it from the correct position. So now we have to understand how does that system remember what the correct pattern is supposed to be. Now, this freaks out a lot of people. And this idea that, uh, you know, uh, at first blush, you say a, a bunch of cells can remember what there's what a limb is supposed to look like. That sounds crazy. Except that let's just think about what memory, what the most familiar kind of memory is. What do you have between your ears when you remember a particular pattern, a, a geometrical shape, an image? We are all bags of cells, basically, right? We are collections of cells. So there is no way to say that it is bizarre that a collection of cells will in some way remember what it should be doing. We do this on a daily basis, right? We have goal-directed activity, you know, go, go, you know, uh, fish and, 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 um, and, and even single cells can do things like this. So 
so so goal directed activity by a collection of cells should really be not that shocking and then and then you say yeah but the brain has these really cool electrical network tricks and i say right all cells in your body do that and so this is what i'm stressing is the sort of continuity between the kind of collective intelligence that cells execute in managing your anatomy is very smoothly and and sort of directly related to how the neurons in your head use their collective intelligence to operate behavior, cognition, and the things that we're familiar with. You know, it seems to me that uh, one of the challenging parts of exploring um, new fields the way that you are is that our language inherently locks you into a way of thinking, right? You think about intelligence and you think, well, I don't exactly know what that definition is, but I kind of know what intelligence is. I'm just going to leave it alone. But you have to be willing and capable of opening up basically every word and trying to understand, well, what do we actually mean by that in order to be able to, to spot patterns among things that seem dissimilar? Yeah, yeah, this is this is absolutely true. And and there are kind of I, I divide all of that the whole problem into two categories. There are some aspects of this which are in some way of problems of our own making. So for example, a lot of people will look at something and they will say, uh, is it intelligent? Does it have cognition or is it just physics? And what that way of framing the problem is uh, is assuming is that these terms like like cognitive, intelligent, maybe conscious, these kinds of terms are binary. You either are or you aren't. And once you do that, you lock yourself into a really terrible set of pseudo problems because then if you take evolution seriously, you're then asking someone to think back, okay, let's see. So there's this, I've got this uh, creature here that I think is true. Maybe it's me, or maybe it's a great ape or whatever it's going to be, you know, a non-human primate, whatever. This is truly cognitive. It has true intelligence, true memory. And then then I'm looking at fish or or insects and I'm saying, ah, they're just faking it. That's not, you know, that's just the mechanism, right? Wherever you want to say. And so what you can do, though, is draw a very smooth line of, of creatures between connecting them. And either through evolution or even through bioengineering, you can make every step along the way. And if you think that those terms are actually binary, you have to, you, what you're really making the claim of is that somewhere there are a couple of parents that are non-cognitive, non-intelligent, or just, you know, mechanical machines. And then they have an offspring and boom, that offspring is now true, has true cognition. That is completely implausible given everything we know about biology. So 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 you're you're locked into this to this problem because you've chosen to say, is something cognitive or isn't it, as opposed to what kind and how much. Right. The much better question is what kind of cognition does it have and how much? If it's a thermostat, it's a tiny little amount. If it's a human, it's a much bigger amount. And 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 so on. Uh, so that's so those are kind of problems of our own making, but there are there are actually deeper problems that are more foundational that are harder to resolve. And Josh Bongard and I recently wrote a paper uh, taking apart a number of terms like, for example, robot or machine. And this is now tough because it used to be. Um, years ago that you could, if you wanted to know what something was, you could sort of walk up and knock on it. And so you, so you sort of knock on it. And if you heard a metallic clanging sound, you could conclude a whole bunch of things. You could say it came out of a factory. It's going to be pretty boring and dull. It's not going to do anything that I don't expect it to do. Humans made it. And by the way, I'm ethically uh, perfectly justified in taking this thing apart and, and rebuilding, a, you know, building something else out of it or trashing it or whatever. Whereas if you were to sort of touch it and instead you felt something, something warm and furry and, and, and you know, sort of soft, 
then you would say, right, this was a product of, of natural um, evolution. It, um, it's going to be interesting and surprising in many ways. It has all kinds of behaviors. Quite possibly, it has an inner perspective. It, it has preferences, and it, and it, you know, there's a kind of a first person on what does it feel like to be whatever that is. And I have ethical responsibilities towards it. I need to be nice to it, and 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 so on. That kind of distinction was fine decades ago. It is it is it is rapidly becoming useless now. And all of these, you know, people people love to write these these papers about how. Um, living things are not machines. And then they list some categories of, of what it is to be a machine. And then, then they try to show that, that living things don't match that. All of these categories that, 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 that people use are things that haven't been true of machines in decades, right? That, that distinction is, is, is being wiped out by all kinds of things. First of all, the use of evolutionary technologies in, in designing machines. So many machines are in fact not designed by humans at all. They're designed by an evolutionary process now. Uh, also the fact that you can uh, many many processes going on in living things are, are in fact uh, uh, well described by the kinds of uh, processes that a modern science of machine behavior not not a 19th century science of machine behavior but a modern science of machine behavior would uh, would would undertake and of course there's hybridization and chimerization the fact that we already have cyborgs we have people who uh, control prosthetic limbs with with their mind right we have uh, we have the converse which are which are robots that house um, living cells that help them get around you know these are called hybrids and everything in between is possible so there are other words like robot, like machine, uh, like evolved, designed, and so on, which are not nearly as um, crisp or obvious as they used to be. And that vocabulary is going to get very difficult uh, as, as time goes on, because we don't know yet what, if anything, that's interesting about the natural world, these words even pick up. It's just completely unclear. If you try to define what a machine is, you know, you might start out saying that, well, it should definitely, you know, tell me apart from a lawnmower, maybe, but you're going to very quickly run into a ton of in-between cases where you're going to get into trouble and, and your terminology is going to be almost useless. This to me is a, a harbinger of, of uh, you know, I, I've read in your articles that people sometimes are accusatory of you, like that uh, the things that you're doing, they're Frankenstein-esque. But the one that seems more dangerous to me in culture is the human mind needs to be able to categorize things, right? We have certain intelligence that you're able to dedicate to things being spread out, right? As you talk about this, this splitting up of things, the human mind starts to, you can only hold so many things in your brain, seven plus or minus two at any one time. And after you go outside of those limits, then you have to have shortcuts because you just can't handle it. And I would imagine that culture will really struggle if the idea of what is life itself comes into question. I mean, just look at how much struggle there is about whether there are two genders. Just imagine alive and dead or robot and, and human. This is this is a harbinger of, of, I think, great tumult coming forward. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't disagree that we have some difficult uh, times conceptually ahead of us, but I don't think that the answer to this is to invent crisp categories that don't exist. So, so that's not gonna. That that's a that's a that's not a way for a mature society to go. So, so so just you know, just to give you a simple example. Um, in, yeah, I don't. I don't think inventing uh, uh, false categories is is the answer. Now, for some things, you need you need rough and ready types of. Um, distinction. So for example, in the legal system, we have this notion of being an adult. And so we, we all know that when you the day you turn 18, 
nothing much happens. You don't get magically smarter. Or, and in fact, we know that uh, the reason we have different ages for for driving and getting insurance and doing various other things is because actually these things don't all mature at once and so on. But but you need some kind of a um, a heuristic to to make uh, the legal world run. Okay, so that's fine. And we're always going to have those kinds of things. But I do think that it's essential to not make up categories where uh, where they don't uh, exist in a way that. Uh, makes 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 distinctions that seem like they're they're much sharper than than they really are, and some of the, um, I mean there there are there are lots of uh, there there are lots of uh, you know re really really bad ones that, that that need to go away. One is this what you started out by saying you know these these Frankenstein esque kinds of things. It's funny everybody on the on this question of. Like what's what are what are technologies uh, um, that are okay and which technologies are scary? So the thing is, everybody places everyone places that boundary differently, and in particular, where you place that boundary is mostly determined by whether you have kids that are sick and whether you need some kind of medical care. Because I get phone calls and emails every day, and they sort of come in in two flavors, right? You've got the people that say what you're doing is is scary and uh, and you should stop. And then you've got the other people are saying, "What what is taking you so long? I've got a I've got a I've got a child with a birth defect, or I've had a spinal cord injury, or I'm missing a limb. What, what are you sitting on? Like, hurry up already!" And 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 those people will will shift drastically depending on how the course of your life goes. It's very easy to you know sort of be scared and freaked out about things when you're coming from a place of everything is great now, and all we should do is not make things worse. But look around; things are not great. And and you know there's nothing magical about about um, what's natural or what's 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 presently the case now. We can do so much better, right? And we and we have to. I think we have a moral obligation to do better. And so this is the sort of that sort of distinction between this is fine and this is scary. I think is 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 profoundly um, mistaken because it's not really based on anything. You know, some people and, and of course some people say, well, setting bones is okay, but you know, transfusions no go. And other people say. Brain surgery, great, but don't give me any any implants. And other people say, I'll, I'll take the implant because because I want to be. Why can't I be smarter than I used to be? You know, what, who's, who said that that my old IQ was the best IQ I should ever be, right? And so these kinds of things, we're this is a spectrum. It's a total spectrum. We're absolutely going to have to wrestle with all of this. And there's another there's another thing which is a really deep problem that we're going to have to wrestle with, which is. I, I think in the coming decades, not that far off, I think you and I will both get to see this, there will be a just a, a massive explosion in the number of unusual uh, agents that we interact with. There are going to be all kinds of bioengineered creatures, novel synthetic constructs, hybrids, hybrids, cyborgs, the, every possible combination of, of living tissue, um, designed materials, machines, and software is going to be around in some fashion. And we are not going to be, when you look at these unusual creatures, you will not be able to do what we normally do, which is to look at something and say, well, I know where this fits on the on the phylogenetic tree. This is kind of like fish-like, so so I can sort of, I know what to expect from it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm gonna use it in a sandwich and we're all good. It's, uh, you're gonna be seeing things that don't look like anything you've ever seen before. And we are going to need, and, I, and I'm not saying I have the answer to this, I'm just pointing this out, that we're going to have to develop a new, uh, a new ethic, a new way to relate to creatures 
where what they're made of and how they got here, right? Their origin story and their composition are not really guides to, not good guides to what you owe them ethically, because they just don't look like anything you've ever seen before. You have no idea what 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 they're like, and and what that what the cognition might be in there that's looking out at you. So that is going to be, I think, a, a, a profound challenge to our um, our abilities to come up with uh, with ethical norms when you can't simply draw a line somewhere across a familiar evolutionary tree, you know, and, and, and just say, if you're below this line, anything goes. And if you're above this line, you know, you have certain rights. Th that simple distinction is going to have to go away. And I don't know what replaces it, but something has to. When you think about, you know, we talked earlier about life having electricity, right? And as soon as the electricity stops, then there's not life. Yep. Does this give you some sort of different sense or different definition of something that really does become binary, where people say there is a God, there's no God, right? Is Do you have some sort of sentimental feeling about where the the sacredness of, of this energy is? Or do you think, no, this is a, a false notion that carried us to a certain point and it's something that should be... Um, yeah, not held on to too tightly. Well, uh, there, there was a few different things there. Um, I, 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 I most certainly do think there, that there is a sacredness in the in in being a cognitive agent, right? So, so having preferences is as soon as soon as you're some sort of agent that has preferences and um, has 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 goal directed activity. Uh, that 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 I think that, that that I think is 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 quite sacred. The fact that 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 in in this physical universe, the remarkable thing about this physical universe is that we can arrange parts of it to become bodies that have minds. Right. That once you've arranged a particular kind of body, and it might not be electrical, or it might be, and it might be living, or it might be non-living, or it might be whatever it's made of. It, it, once you've once you've created something that has a first-person perspective looking outwards, the, the the fact that that exists in our universe, I think, is profoundly sacred. I don't consider it binary because. I think it comes in degrees. I think there are very simple ones like thermostats, and I think there are very complex ones like humans. There are probably, uh, you know, humans are probably not the top of the food chain at some point, and there are going to be uh, either here or somewhere else. We're going to see creatures that are that that are are way more advanced than us in their cognitive capacities. So, so it is a continuum. I don't think it's binary. But the fact that this exists at all, I think, is is, is it just fills me with awe. I, th I think it's it's incredibly sacred. So uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Lee Cronin, who's a favorite on the podcast, when I asked him, hey, what would you ask, Michael? He wanted to know, um, I want to read this precisely, ask him how electricity invents intelligence through brains, which I think we've kind of been around all of this with cognition. Yeah. But you brought up a point like a memory is there, but there's no place I can open up my brain and say, there's the memory right there. We could just cut it out. It's, it's something going on as a mass of those cells. Are those yeah. the same question? Well, they're they're related, and and so what I would say is this: I would think I would say that what what the study of electricity in living things has taught us is that brain, the word brain, should not it does not refer to a particular grayish substance of a certain size and shape. That's not what brains are. Brains are particular kinds of networks of subagents that can do the things that we think brains do. So they make decisions, they store memories, they uh, they house uh, preferences. And so so brain to me is a functional term. It's not a structural term. when you when you look at something and ask if it's a brain, 
the way to know is to do certain kinds of behavioral experiments, not by uh, by looking at it and saying, "Oh, this looks like a this looks like a monkey brain." I've seen this before. That's not that's not what brains are. And um, we that's you know we shouldn't be terrified of this. We that that's happened to lots of. Um, uh, lots of lots of our, our lots of terms that that we've had before, where you've had to say, well, what's really essential about about this term? Is it is it you know it's got to be this particular thing? No, because somebody just you know uh, somebody just uh, discovered a bunch of other things that really fit, but they don't look like it, but they are really the same thing. The most comfortable people with that sort of thing are the computer scientists, because it is a fundamental notion in computer science that what you're made of. Uh, and what you look like doesn't matter. What matters is what your function is. How are you able to, what, what computations are you able to do? And so you and I use a particular kind of computer, at least in theory, that same kind of computer as Dan Dennett puts it can be made of beer cans and string. You can, because, and it doesn't matter because the computations that it will carry out uh, will in the end be exactly the same. So that's what I think electricity is telling us that there's brains everywhere. Uh, root, uh, the root tips of plants are a kind of brain and I'm not the first person to say that, other people have said that. Um, uh, there, there are brains all over the place and not just between our ears. And that I think that's a much more useful definition of, of, of what a brain is. Good golly, man, you must uh, be wildly open on the spectrum because the the, the ability to be able to redefine something as simple as a brain is is one that um, is very, very difficult to, to wrap your mind around. My wife and I, we were talking about this interview last night. She's a physical therapist. And she was uh, bringing up the idea that, you know, sometimes you can get someone better. They have an injury to their knee or to, you know, their ankle. And yet, even if all of the tissue is perfectly where it's supposed to be, there's no inflammation, they tell you, I'm in pain. And then you stick them in an fMRI machine and their brain lights up in these, in these, in these parts of the, of the brain. What is going on there with that electrical signal? Is it a bad electrical signal? Is is there a short circuit somewhere? What's going on? Yeah, well, so so I'll, I'll make a more general point because I'm, I'm not a physical therapist and so I don't know exactly in that particular case what's going on. But I'll make a more general comment, which is this. When your computer is misbehaving, getting out your soldering iron and rewiring the hardware is only one of the tools you have. And in fact, for advanced machines, that's really your last resort, right? That's that's not really where you go first because there are lots of things that are handleable in software. So I I think I'm not surprised in the slightest by the fact that somebody would have their their physical hardware would be fine and there's nothing wrong with your joint and the the, the nerves work and everything else, but you're in pain for all kinds of reasons. You could imagine top down kinds of things where. Uh, you might be in pain for psychological reasons. There might be, you know, you might be associating past events with this with this trauma. And you know, we're talking about um, thing, things like uh, phantom limb pain, and uh, there, there are all kinds of poorly understood phenomena that I think speak to this issue. So, so phantom limb pain is one. Um, uh, uh, hypnodermatology is another. So this 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 idea that you can treat certain kinds of skin diseases, so you, you usually with an autoimmune component, but not necessarily with with hypnosis and suggestion and things like this. We know that there is a evolution uses uh, uses massive software layers on top of the hardware, and most of the interesting things we're talking about are not necessarily. Uh, better handled at the hardware level. The hardware might actually be fine, and you might have all kinds of uh, so, sort of top-down issues that are that are uh, that are presenting with phenotypes. And so, you know, uh, 
and 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 to your and to your previous point about you know how how I'm uh, sort of being just incredibly plastic with all these terms. On the one hand, look, if you're in a neuroanatomy class and you want to reserve the word brain because that's the thing you're all dissecting all day and that's what you're studying, I mean, f- of course, f- fine. I, I understand that you know we can, we can't just go around and and not have any idea what we're talking about. That's fine. But in a deeper sense, if you sort of ask, well, when did brains evolve or what what really are brains relative to other types of tissue? You run into these these really troublesome corner cases because, for example, I've I've been in in, in meetings of if devoted to basal cognition, where we spend three hours arguing about what a neuron is. It's really not obvious at all because people say, well, it's electrically active, right? Every cell in your body is. Hmm. Well, it has neurotransmitters. Yeah, lots of cells in your body have neurotransmitters. Well, it it you know it it processes information. Yeah, of course, all cells do. And so you 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 sort of go through this whole rigmarole and eventually. You know, uh, you find, and then and then somebody says, "Well, so 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 eventually you land in a particular set of definitions." And then I say, "Right, so where'd that come from? What what did, what did the previous you know go 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 back uh, you know of, of a half a million years or whatever? What'd that look like?" And you say, "Well, it kind of had some of these features, but not others." So now what is it a is it an is it a brain or isn't it? And and th- that's where these we can use these categories and we can use these terms, but we have to be clear that. Uh, the metaphors, sometimes they constrain and sometimes they help. And you have to be clear on when you use a binary category like that, what are you really claiming, right? That's, that's, that's really the key. You know, it, so there, I have a friend that's got, he's uh, doing some, um, what I call imaginary math, right? So he's on the outer edges of the extreme of mathematics. And I one time was like, man, come on the podcast. We'll talk all about it. And he said, no, I'm, I, I'm not going to come on the podcast. And I kind of pushed him and we kind of joked around about it. But then he was like, well, the reason I can't come on your podcast is because it took me eight years of study just to get to the point where I understood everything that was known about mathematics. And then I had to go out into the wild and discover something new. And the thing about mathematics is it is precise. You say it's, it's not like something else. It's not a simile. It's not like, and we use, he used the example of biology. He's like, you know, in biology, you can kind of use these metaphors and kind of get there. But if I do that, right, if I say it's like something else without actually saying what it is, you've broken the very thing that makes this beautiful to me, which is its precision. And yeah. therefore, it's not a good, it's not a good fit for me. There seems to be something, you know, moldable and pliable about our understanding of biology that you're actually uncovering is actually more precise in some ways. It, it's, and it's also way more fluid and open in other ways. It's, it's like a, it's, it's an, I didn't expect that the conversation would go here, but does that strike you as, as something connected to what you're saying? Yeah, no, I think it is, and uh, I, I, I'm no mathematician by any means, but uh, but I will give you a thought to maybe to maybe discuss with your friend, which is that he's 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 right in that uh, there is a certain kind of precision when you say two things are isomorphic or they're really the same or whatever. You there's a kind of precision here that you don't get in other areas of thought. That's true, but. I would dare say that you can, and you can ask him. I, I would dare say that most of the mathematical objects that he deals with, right, rings and fields and all this, all this crazy stuff that I don't, you know, I can't even fathom. Um, what exactly, if those aren't metaphors, and if those are, what, what are they? In other words, 
you know, this is this is a longstanding argument. Is mathematics discovered or invented? Are these things sort of hanging out there somewhere in in some sort of invisible platonic space? Or, you know, because because when when he says, I, you know, people will say, I study this, I study a manifold, uh, you know, some it's a mathematical terrain, I study a manifold. So, so, so what do you mean by that? So where's it, like, where is it? Why well, you can't find it? It's you know, right, but but what are you actually studying? Well, imagine it's sort of like, yeah, that, that, great. So, so what I would like to find out is, does he think these things that he's actually studying are exist somewhere, are hanging out somewhere, right? In some sense, and some people, some people certainly believe that. I mean, I'm close to that view on many things, but uh, I would be very leery of claims that as a mathematician, he's being precise and studying real sharp things. Where are these things that he's that he's studying? I, I, it, it's it, that that bears some digging into, actually. Yeah, the metaphor that he made, which made me laugh and probably got me to leave him alone, which was uh, he's like, I, I liken it to painting really, really specialized seascapes. And uh, only I and a few other people in the world are, you know, care about these seascapes. But I only care about the other people that can see the seascapes. So I take your point. The, um, uh, but it, it's, it's just an interesting thing because in a lot of ways, biology, some of their biggest flaws. So I've had um, a professor on named um, Doug Sammons, who um, actually worked in uh, genetic engineering and all, all sorts of uh, plant interactions with chemistries. And he says, you know, the, the best scientists in the world have this unending desire for consilience, where everything makes sense, right? Where it all fits together. And in fact, the people that allow there to be big gaps between an understanding where they're like, ah, you know, it's close enough. They're the ones that never quite jump the chasm to be able to discover something new. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, you're, you're both saying we should be wide open, but also understand much more precisely what it is that we're talking about. It's, it's, I didn't expect this to be go here. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And I, I certainly love consilience and, and I love symmetry. I, I, I really, uh, one, one of the sort of, um, uh, strategies that I use for thinking about things is to, uh, this this idea of symmetry borrowed basically from physics to ask what kind of knobs can I turn and and make it so that one thing becomes something else. So you take you know you take you take um, you take a brain and you say so what if I relax the the um, the requirement that it look a certain way? What other things then are also brains? Or if I say what if I you know these these kinds of things right? So 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 I love all of that and I love finding commonalities. You know there are splitters and lumpers right? And so so I'm definitely a lumper and I find commonalities between things that other people. Uh, often say, are those really the how how can you how can you say those things are the same? And then you know my job is is if I if I believe it is to is to show the symmetries to find here's why they're the same because here's the common factor that's the same between those two and it's really important right the thing the 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 differences that you see are incidental they're hiding the truth that these are really the same problem in some way so that's so that's all well and good and I'm totally on board with how how, how lovely that is as a way of doing science. I do think, though, we have to be humble about the following thing. This idea of consistency and consilience and things fitting together is by its is in itself, <clears throat> it's it's an axiom. It's not something we can prove. It's something we set out from the very beginning. We say, <laughs> I believe good science should all fit together, right? That's great. And that'll guide you, you, you know, that that certainly has has led to all kinds of progress. Fantastic. But I always think back, there's an old saying, which is. Uh, show me, uh, show me the, the the your fishing net and the size of the holes in your fishing net, and I'll tell you what you're going to catch. Because the only thing you're going to catch with that thought 
uh, with that kind of uh, approach are things that, in fact, uh, are uh, susceptible to consilience. Things that, you know, if we say right from, from the get-go that I don't consider to be science anything that doesn't fit or doesn't follow standard logic or whatever whatever your 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 favorite you know um, uh, axioms are for 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 the for the scientific method and the and the content of science. Maybe there isn't anything else, and maybe we're super lucky, and and that's just that we we've already caught on to you know sort of the way to catch everything. Our net is like the finest net you can have, and that's great. But how are you ever going to know? Because you've automatically right? You've automatically left behind all of the things that don't match your preconception of how things are supposed to go. And, and so when, when you, you know, when you drag with a certain kind of net and you say, I got everything in here, right? You got everything that was bigger than, than, than the gaps in your net. So I don't know of any way to guarantee that re the reality, which is probably much stranger than uh, any science that, 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 that our brains can, can conceive is actually so nice that everything is conciliatory. Do I, you know, can we, can we show in any way that, that a good picture of the world isn't going to be actually inconsistent the way that the way that the girdle showed that you can have in a sufficiently powerful system, you're going to have inconsistent statements and they may all, they may all be useful simultaneously. And I don't have any guarantee that the final reality is something where everything is completely consistent with each other. We'd like to think so. And that's a good way to work as if that's your goal but let's not kid ourselves that we can somehow prove that that's going to be the case we could. i'm i'm what were you like as what were you like as a child what, what <laughs> was, was it like were you <laughs> were you a, a pain no. in the ass because you questioned everything or you're disagreeable or i know i wasn't disagreeable i i questioned everything but it was also pretty obvious that um uh some people didn't enjoy that and so, I, you know, I, uh, I was a pretty quiet kid because there were some people you could talk about this stuff with, and the majority of people had no interest in, in that kind of thing. Uh, and so, you know, I kept, I kept most of it to myself, really. Um, yeah, and in fact, in fact that, was, that was a strategy uh, that I used th throughout my career. I was kind of, when, when, I, was, when I was younger, um, I, I, I made a study of, various kinds of scientific uh, cranks and, and uh, you know, pe people who had wacky ideas, a small percentage of whom broke through and, and discovered great things and were very successful, and then the majority that didn't. And one thing that's obvious from that kind of thing is that there is such a thing as being too far ahead. In other words, you don't want to be 100 years ahead of everybody because, because you get nowhere. Your, your impact is going to be low because nobody knows what you're talking about. No one comes with you on this journey. No one can, can work with you or help you. You want to be, I don't know, 20 years ahead, 50 years ahead at best, maybe. And so at best. And so, you know, I think it's very clear um, that it's important to look at your audience and to ask, which part of my vision am I going to roll out at any given moment, right? What, what's going to make an impact now? What, what are people ready to sort of think about with me and help and, and you know, sort of what, 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 what's going to move the ball forward as opposed to, I'm just going to tell you every crazy idea I have right now. And you're going to say, wow, that most of that, I, that most of that is crap. And, and then we're done. So, so that's, that's kind of how I was as a kid. Anyway, I would just sort of, I would only talk about the, you know, I would try to read the room as best as, as best as I could. I I, uh, I relate to that in a big way. Like my work right now, I spend a lot of time going out and traveling and talking with different groups, oftentimes about philosophical or how mm -hmm. to how to get along with people better. Yeah. But for the first 10, 15 years of my professional career, I was just a ramrod. I was like, I don't really care 
what you want to talk about. I want to talk about what I want to talk about, and I'm just going to make you do it. And it took me a long time to figure out, like, you're you're not going to get anywhere. But the internet um, allows you to interconnect with people in a way that wasn't before. You know, it used to be that you were wherever you were born, right? That geography around you, whoever you were around. But it's got to be quite quite different now. One of the ideas that I read um, that you put forward with Daniel Dennett was about the concept of the cone of cognition. Do you think you could describe this and then we can kind of um, have a discussion about it? Sure. Yeah. So, so, so the, so I came up with this idea of the cognitive light cone. Uh, uh, it was originally, um, I, I had a paper in, I think 2018 describing it. And then Dan and I sort of developed it a little, a little further in that, in that paper afterwards. The, the idea is this, if you, this, this came out of a, um, a conference that we had in uh, in Scotland uh, put on by the Templeton Foundation that was around the theme of diverse intelligences. And the idea was that if you think about, if you think broadly about intelligence and you think about all of the potential intelligent agents that might exist. So we're talking about not just, you know, I mean, some people say, you know, uh, there's, there's, some, there's, uh, there's uh, there are birds and mammals, and then there's an octopus. How do we compare mammals with octopus intelligence, right? But you can go, I mean, that's just a tiny corner of it. You can say, fine. And so we're going to have intelligent machines and there might be possible alien species and there might be um, bioengineered creatures that you've never seen before, like all of these different types of intelligence intelligence, how could you possibly compare them? And so the idea was what they challenged us to do was to come up with a framework or a rubric for placing all of these intelligences on the same scale, which, which really fundamentally goes back to your question before about um, identifying uh, symmetries. Uh, it's really about asking what is the common thread? So if you have an octopus or a machine that uh, a, a created robot that runs around and does various things or some alien somewhere, the what is the common factor that allows you to call all of these intelligent? What's the important thing? It's not what they're made of. That that surely that doesn't matter. But but what matters is okay. What is the common factor? So 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 different people had different. Um, a number of groups came up with different ideas, and and here was mine. Mine my idea was that what's central about intelligent agents is some degree of goal directedness. That basically, in order to be an intelligent agent you should be able to work towards specific goals. And what I mean by that is not in, not in a scary mystical sense, but, but in the cybernetic sense that, that you're a system that exerts energy towards a preferred state of affairs in whatever space that that might be right it might be might be a liver trying to keep you in your blood and homeostasis it might be a creature doing something it might be a cell trying to pick out gene expression out of a you know out of the 20,000 different genes that might it might have and so on. And so, so goal directedness. And so I said, fine. So, so we say we say that the fundamental thing about being an intelligent agent is is being able to pursue goals. And then the question is, um, so how do we map this out? How do we how do we what what kind of a what kind of a, a, a map can we make of different intelligences? And so I said, let's just let's just take a let's just try to um, estimate the scale of the biggest goal that any system could possibly entertain. And so I'll just give you an example. And, and so what we're talking about is, is in space and time. So in space and time, what are the biggest, the most grandiose goals you could conceive of? So, so here's some examples. If you're a, if you're a bacterium, uh, all of your goals center around a very tiny region of space right around you. You're, you're, you're working towards increasing the amount of sugar or whatever it is that you eat in that tiny little space. You have a little bit of memory, I think about 20 minutes back, you know, a little bit of memory, maybe a little bit of predictive capacity going forward. So in space and time. So, so I drew this map with this diagram, which looks very much like those... Um, 
uh, uh, light cone diagrams that they draw in physics where one dimension sideways is, is space, so distance along three, however many spatial dimensions, the matter, you collapse them onto one, and then the vertical dimension is time. So you come out with this little, so every creature, so now you imagine this giant plane where the horizontal is a measure of how far away from the agent it cares about things happening, and in time, how far away in time, so past and future. So now, so now if you're a bacterium or, or a tick or something like that, you have a very tiny little 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 circle on that on that map because you have a little bit of memory going back. You have a, maybe a little bit of predictive capacity going forward. Really, all you care about is this tiny little space right around you. That's it. Okay. You're 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 ne- and so and so the reason it's a it's a cognitive boundary is because beyond that scale, you are fundamentally incapable of of working towards goal. So if so if you're if you're a tick or a bacterium, you are never going to be able to be concerned or working towards the state of the economy or the, you know, what happens <laughs> next week. It's just not it's just impossible, right? If you are, so let's just think about some other things. If 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 you're a dog, you have you have quite a bit of memory going backwards, you have some predictive capacity going forwards, you have a bigger cognitive cone, but you are never ever going to care about what will happen next month three towns over just not going to happen right as far as we know it's not going to happen so you have you have a bigger light cone but you have a light cone right we all do every every real agent is limited and finite right none of us are, are infinite cognitive agents so you are going to have a cone if you're a human your cone might be enormous you might i mean i, I literally know people that are depressed because the um the sun is going to uh, you know expand at one point and wipe out the earth you know it's going to be how many billions of years in the future right but but they're already depressed about it and so there is a cognitive system that can comprehend and in the case you know people work towards world peace and do all kinds of things that are going to be here long after they're dead we are a cognitive system that can represent goals and can can set ourselves to work up towards goals that are massively huger than our own. And by the way, something something interesting, a, a transition that happens is that we are perhaps the only creature that is able to represent goals that are bigger than our own survival uh, cone on this diagram. Because if you're if you're a goldfish and um, your goal is to survive the next 20 minutes, th- that's totally doable, right? That's likely to, to your goal is achievable. You have an achievable goal. If you're a human. Have all sorts of goals that are absolutely unachievable because because you, you because you know 80 100 years however long you're going to live you, you have we are capable of comprehending all sorts of goals beyond that what are my children going to do what's society going to do what's science going to do where's the planet going to be are we going to be all these things we are we are uniquely capable of coming up with goals that are for sure unachievable by us for, for sure and so you know whether that's the root of a lot of our psychoses i have i have no idea but 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 it's a unique thing that our goals are now bigger than than our own survival cone on this diagram right now so so on this on this diagram you can now place any possible creature if you make an ai that uh it might have a weirdly shaped cone. It might have all kinds of memory going back, maybe no predictive power going forward. Maybe it cares about all sorts of things, but only in the next 10 seconds. You know, you can have all kinds of weird shapes that you could build. Maybe there are aliens or maybe future humans will have a massively bigger cone than that of current humans. I'll give you a simple example. Um, when when we hear about some sort of tragedy befalling, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10,000 people, we're pretty sad about it. If you now find out that actually it was 100,000 people, we're not 10 times sadder, right? Because we simply can't, we don't have the, 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 the cognitive capacity to really be in the linear range of and, and really um, viscerally um, uh, have the, the welfare of all these other creatures as our goal. But maybe future humans can. Maybe, you know, um, I, always, I always think about, uh, again, in, in court, there's this notion of 
diminished capacity. So somebody goes to court and they say, well, uh, this is a case of diminished capacity. This, this, this person doesn't have the, the, the competency to care about as many things as a standard issue human and therefore whatever. Well, fine, that's diminished capacity. What does increased capacity look like? What does, what does a human uh, or whatever we're going to huh. be, you know, a thousand years from now, they go to court and somebody says, you've got a hundred times the capacity of a standard human. You should have absolutely foreseen that XYZ is going to happen. And you've, you know, you should be, you should have the personal welfare of 7 billion people in your mind at all times. So you, you are capable of it. That's what we expect of you, right? So, so it's entirely possible. I mean, I don't see any reason why today's human should be should be a ma should be the maximum you know on this on this chain the f I, in fact as far as i can tell it's it's infinite so yeah and that's exactly the way we uh parent children right you you look at their cone of cognition and you say ah that you know you should have known that coloring on yeah. the wall yeah. is, is not good yeah. Yeah. or if they're a little bit younger you're like ah you really didn't know that was <laughs> that's yeah. on me and and that's and that's exactly right and that goes back to and that goes the goes goes exactly back to your um, your idea of making it making it binary. And when you start kids, it, it isn't binary because because you know that every day there are certain things that you're like, ah, should they have known or could they have known? I don't know. You have no idea, right? And you kind of do your best. And there's some some heuristics about things, but uh, it's very much uh, it's very fluid and it's always a work in progress. And you try to match expectations to what a creature can be expected to do, right? If you're a learning agent or you're not a learning agent or you know, we and and the, this stuff comes up all the time. Somebody somebody goes to court and they did horrible things, and you find out they had a brain tumor. So, you know, can you really blame someone where the by the where the chemistry of their brain was such that I'm not sure they could have done anything differently? What does it even mean for them to try to do something different? They, you know, they're they're a different kind of cognitive system now. They're instead of nice brain tissue, there's massive tumor that's that's you know messing up all the all the signaling. So these things have been with us for forever. Right? <laughs> You know, you're giving me a whole different way to look at probably my favorite science fiction novel written in the last 20 years, The Three-Body Problem, right? Where mm -hmm. where they have to, are you familiar with the book? Yeah. Where they have to yeah. predict what's going to happen in 10,000 years and, and yeah. be prepared for this problem. And uh, But the zone of cognition or the cone of cognition, it really is about expecting people to do things. And that's why that book is so fascinating, right? It really expands it out. So speaking of uh, children, you know, you have the ability to... Um, zoom the camera lens way out and be able to see a future that is unimaginable to most people. How are you preparing your children to live in this world where there's so much optionality? Yeah, uh, boy, that's, that's a good question. Uh, and I, uh, I, I struggled with this a lot. Um, my kids, uh, well, uh, we, we did a lot of, we did a lot of homeschooling for, for, for part of their education. And I did, I personally did, um, philosophy classes with them, uh, not, not philosophy in the sense of, you know, here are a bunch of guys who said X, Y, Z a hundred years ago, but, but, but the philosophical problems, critical thinking, working through things like what we're talking about now, um, yeah, I think to whatever extent kids listen to anything we say, which I'm not convinced that, uh, you know, that that really th that that talking about things really digs in. I think mostly they watch by example and, and so on. I'm 100 percent in that camp. I, I believe in the Rene Girard kind of mimetic desire. If you show an interest in it and you can get your children to want to be like you, then that's how they learn. But very little of what you tell them is. Yeah, stick. yeah, that, that's probably true. But but to the extent that any of it does. Uh, what I, you know, what I really uh, try to tell my kids is to is is that a lot of what they see and hear 
are 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 passing through people's people's lenses everybody has a lens and in fact multiple lenses on how they see the world and when you see people doing things or saying things or you read things none of it is none of it is is uh, is absolute or god-given all of it is is somebody's attempt to make sense of the world their attempt to make sense of the world might be useful to you and you should squeeze it for every bit of uh you know inspiration that you can find but you should develop yours and you should also be clear and humble about the fact that yours is just as flawed as everybody else's, but yours is the one you have control over. And so, so you don't have any control really over what anybody else is going to do and why people say the things they do, but you have really good over time, you have really good um, control over, over being able to hone your own lenses into ones that show you the world that you want to see and that you want to work, that you want to live in and that you want to operate in, you know, it's like, you have you know somebody I forget who said it, but you know dirty windows right you have dirty windows everything looks looks dirty when you look out so so this idea that what they need to do is they need to not take anything for granted that anybody says including me but to actually work through and ask themselves here's a, here's a metaphor in a, here's a way to look at the world how's that working out is that working out for me and if it's not change it and and is it working out for everybody else and what does it mean you know is it what 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 are the Mm, what are the ways to see the world that makes for a more productive and a happier existence for everybody, not just for you, but, but you know, for, for everybody. And I think, I think that, that level of plasticity is, it, it goes into a lot of stuff. It goes into things like, um, uh, like uh, taking, taking things personally. I say, I, I, you know, I said to them, to them a lot, I said, there's almost never a cause to take things personally almost nothing is personal people people have stuff going on it's it's about the, people have stuff going on in their own life and uh it's not about you and there's no point in getting mad about why anybody said or what it's it, there are there are various factors psychological historical whatever for why people say the things they do M move on move on take what you can from it leave leave everything else behind move on do something better right it's just everything that's that 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 that's my central message is that is that everything is a metaphor that nothing nothing is is god given everything you see in here and the only question is how's it working out for you is it you know is it is it working or not yeah i think that's actually one of the challenges of raising children because at the one hand you're trying to get them to have an awareness like turn the lights on and make sure you're aware that you are an independent agent and you can make decisions and yet you are not the center of the universe because it doesn't do you any good to perceive yourself as the bringer of all things or the reason that people did things is because of you and so you have this like this this uh dichotomy or this pull that is is got to be you know right now my my child is 14 months old so i've got lots of time to yeah. think about this without actually having to put it into practice it's amazing uh oh i found um it's really incredible when you when you watch when you watch little kids, especially um, the acquisition of language. Uh, you know, there there are these there are these communities that that talk about intelligence and artificial intelligence. And so, if you have uh, if you have a chatbot that kind of uh, you know it's some it's a software that more or less kind of carries on some kind of conversation, right? So, what people will say is. It's just using a statistical model. It doesn't know what it's talking about. It's just it's just using statistics to figure out what words are going to make sense next. Whereas me, I really know what words mean, and I'm using it intentionally. Right? When you watch a kid learn language, 
what you see is a completely smooth transition between the first type of uh, phenomenon and the second. You don't see, it's not, yeah, this is this is a chatbot and a robot, and this is a real being. No, no, they turn, the one turns into the other, and it's a massive mystery of how that happens, because I used to, my, my youngest used to, uh, um, used to run around for a short time period, and he would... Uh, he would add the words .com to everything, you know, you go sandwich.com you know, because, because, because he heard this and he sort of figured out that you could add it on to certain words and then things, ha interesting things happen. So he'd try it out. And then after a few days of that, when he realized that, no, it doesn't actually work for it, then he stopped. And then, you know, and, and it's like, that. It's just a funny thing, but it's like that with, with everything they, you can see at first that it is all statistical modeling. They're just trying to repeat things they've heard before in various combinations and link and trying to get good things to happen and just sort of messing around with it to see what will happen. And then before you know it, you're like, oh, you, you, you really seem like you know what you're talking about there. And that's the same creature. It's the same creature that went from state A to state B. It isn't that you have two wildly different. So, so that's just one of the many interesting things that you know that you can learn on this whole area from from just from watching kids. Yeah, there's it's it's an interesting thing because there's so much noise at first, right? They're trying out every single phoneme that the human mind can can possibly put together, and then they start parsing out all the ones that aren't useful, and then whatever's left over is, is signal for them to be able to use to get what they want in the world, and it's. Yeah. It's fascinating to uh, to watch and to embrace. Yeah. So uh, we're going to wrap up, but I want to give you one one chance uh, to do something that for my audience that I think they'll really enjoy. If they've come all the way through to this long into the interview, you are around people that are really thinking about the the rough edges of the universe that we can just barely peek to. You know, our, your cone of cognition way out there into the way the world could could uh, work. You know, the Long Now Foundation is famous for asking people to think ten thousand years into the future. I don't know that I'll ask you to do 10,000 years, but give me a scenario about the future that you think is conceivable, but, uh, but way, way off in the distant future. Wow. Um, I mean, I, I, I find that very difficult in the sense that, uh, I think it's, I mean, we can't even, we, we're, we're terrible at, at predicting things that are going to happen 10, 20 years into the future. I find, I find it really hard to, to make any kind of plausible predictions going forward. What, what, I, think, what I think I'll say is, is this. this one, one way in which I think the future is going to be completely transformed, and I don't think it's going to take thousands of years. I think it's going to be decades, literally, but, but it's going to transform everything, is that the space of possible embodiments of, of agents of various kinds, the different bodies that, that you see around you, is going to be uh, massively exploded and that we're going to live in. So, so Darwin had this, this phrase, um, endless forms, most beautiful, right? And he was looking out into, I think, a riverbank and he was saying, look at all these life forms and they're so different. You know, here's, a, here's grass and here's a, a bug and here's a frog and you know, they're so different. Okay, all of that is still a tiny corner of the option space. Just it's just an end of one of Earth's particular evolution, uh, the, the, you know, the phylogenetic web here. Um, the the um, the number of creatures that are going to exist of all kinds of uh, different kinds of bodies and different kinds of minds is going to be astronomical. Whether it is just here in society or when we get off the planet and just sort of sp spread out, um, th that's really what it means to leave the Garden of Eden. You know, there's this there's this great painting, um, Adam in the Garden of Eden. And what he's doing is he's naming the animals. 
right? So the animals walk up to him and he names them. So that's great. And that that's that's fantastic when you have a finite set number of animals and there aren't any more. Like here, here are here are you know a thousand different animals, and that's all that there are, and these are the natural kinds. That's not the world we live in. The world we live in allows uh every possible combination i mean literally of 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 living tissue designed machines software hybridization between i mean even back then people knew that you could sort of you know you had your donkeys and your horses but you could also make a mule that's interesting what else could you make right and so so there were some plants of course people have been hybridizing for, oh, for a really tree grafting time, right? is nothing short of black magic right absolutely right <laughs> so 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 this is what i think is going to be the major change right now we th you know people think about you know, what's going to happen to humans and are there still going to be humans? Well, there's going to be someone, whether or not you want to call them humans, uh, probably you won't. And does it matter that they don't look like humans? Um, you don't look like an embryo when uh, when you were an embryo, you look completely different because you and you have more capabilities because of it. Uh, so that's that's the the future that I think about mostly where, you know, it's like, um, you, you know, what comes to, to me in terms of um, uh, sort of popular culture and sci-fi that, that comes the, the closest is kind of like the Star Wars universe. You know, you start with the, like the cantina scene, right? So you got a bunch of aliens and you get a bunch of robots and you got, you got the ones that are basically just like drink carts on wheels that are just strolling around and bringing drinks. And you got C-3PO who's, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, he's that, that got level, that level of cognition. You have everything in between. You have every crazy kind of, you know, that's that's actually the universe we're going to be living in, whether it's already like that or whether we're going to make it like that. But sooner or later, that's, you know, if we don't, if we, if we don't kill the whole planet, of course, that's that's what it's going to be like. And so, so that's about the only thing I'm comfortable saying for sure that I think is going to happen, that if we manage not to sort of kill off everybody, I think the future is an incredible diversity of bodies and minds beyond anything we could even comprehend at this point. It's amazing that you use the metaphor of uh, the Garden of Eden because Yosha Bach one time had, had a commentary about um, the Garden of Eden is the version of childhood, right? It's the it's the it's the period of time where you get to name the animals and, and children are learning how to live in the world before they go out and they get scandalized in some way. And so to put it in that metaphor is is really scary to think of as you know, a 40 year old adult to, that you haven't left the Garden of Eden yet and you're about to, to enter the, the wild world. Yeah, in some ways is extremely exciting to me because I love newness and novelty, but it's also somewhat scary. And I, for one, am really glad that there is somebody out there as brave as you are and uh, and as prolific in your writing and your work. So, man, I hope you just keep going as hard as you can go, because uh, I think you're um, regardless of, of whatever you put into the world, the way you think about it, I think just makes the world more colorful. So thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a real pleasure. It was a good conversation. Thank you. And if people wanted to learn more about your lab or, or what you're working on, what would anything you would direct them to? Yeah, we, we have a number of websites um, that maybe maybe we can put up with the links with the uh, with the audio. So so there's my main website, which is drmike11.org. And that's just my my Tufts uh, lab website that has all, all kinds of things uh, relevant to the work. We have my uh, my Allen Center, my Allen Discovery Center uh, website, which is allencenter.tufts.edu. And then I have a Twitter presence, which is at Dr. Mike 11. All right, Mike 11, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. <laughs>